Listener Production. This is episode six of Up Close Conversations with Modern Veterans. Our veterans have taken different paths since leaving the ADF, learning to value their skills and experience in civilian life. In this final episode, they discuss leaving the uniform and the challenge of finding fulfilling employment. The camaraderie is difficult to replace, and each of our veterans has found a way to engage that spirit. I have my moments. Um, I, I think I'm in a lot better place uh, for a number of things because I left with a bit of bitterness about a few things um, when I left the Navy, but I've left that and I've got different eyes now. I, I think I'm in a lot better place because I was heavily involved with veteran work. It always has been. Um, I was involved with the RSL. I've left the RSL, but um, I'm now one of the chairman and the president of the Keith Payne VC Veterans Benefit Group. And my sense of purpose is to um, look after those veterans. So I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm far enough back where, where my eyes are wide enough to have a look at. What the worrying part is, people who leave who don't have anything outside, they're the ones that I hate to say will die early or, or they just... And they fall through the gap and that's when we become veteran suicide and, and those other sad things. Um, we've got a lot of things going. Um, we've got a surfing program that we, we got through. Uh, down, it's at Gerald Beach, but we've, we've put something like, um, I think, about 80-odd veterans through it. We got a good grant through um, the government a couple of years back. And, um, and we figure out of that we've done something like 1,200 individual lessons um, with a local surfer whose his, um, enthusiasm is just infectious. He's got the long hair, he's a big wave surfer, and but his enthusiasm with our veterans is just infectious. And um, we reckon we've saved at least four people who who were on the brink of um, doing self-harm. We've been dropping off, we call it vitamins for veterans. So we've been dropping off food to the old fellas who like their, their offal, like, you know, the, the lamb's fry and things like that. Uh, we also do a thing called Digger Day where we dedicate a whole day. Here, here our local is rugby. Um, so we dedicate a whole day for um, raising money for our veterans. We also do one in Adelaide with the Aussie rules down there. And you're still a young man. How old are you? I'm only 55. I reflect on it as, as, a, as a great journey that I, I wouldn't miss for anything. And I often think, do I have regrets? I don't have any regret of taking this line. It's been a great adventure. And I mean, one day I joke, I'll write a book about it, but it might have to go in the fiction section because no one will believe what I've what I've had the, the opportunity to get up to, what the people I've had the opportunity to meet. I mean, 97, I toured, I toured England to play rugby for the Navy. That's one thing. I've gone to beautiful places, been to some bad places. I've got to serve my country in the Middle East. I've got to serve my country in the Pacific. Just just my, my network of people that I've met is just from, I mean, I've met a beautiful lady and I've got beautiful kids um, through my service. 2013, you've already got a chest full of medals. You get one from the Queen, I guess, is it? The Order of Australia Medal? It's signed off by the Governor-General, but um, on the Queen's behalf, so... How did that feel? I can't tell you. Um, my wife, got she got one in 2012, and I was so proud of her to get that. Um, I was on long... Took a few months long service leave because I was trying to get my head into a, a good place, um, as well as... Because it wasn't long after that that I... Long, long before that, I was diagnosed with um, the issues... Um, I went out to my letterbox, opened it up, and there was this letter from the Secretary of the Governor-General. And I opened it up and I, I stood there. I don't know how long. I, could have been a minute, could have been an hour. And the only person I had to talk to, because um, my wife was, she was actually on HMA's Parramatta at that stage. She was deployed. 
was a dog, and the dog just wagged the tail at me. <laughs> and she's happy no matter if I just talk to her. But um, but it was I, I just I I had lost for words. I was just so excited. So it doesn't matter if you. And this is once again that mantra we talk about. If you've done one day or you've done forty years, you have served. Remember that Australia is proud of you. I'm proud of I'm proud of me. It took me a long time to, to say that to myself. But I'm proud of everyone who served, and that's what they've got to think. You're doing something that not many people have done or will do into the future, and you're doing something special that you're doing this for your country. And I'd say just remember to stay proud of yourself and, and the country is proud of you. Well, Crikey's, I'm proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for your service. Like Fred Campbell, Auntie Lorraine Hatton took some time to understand her path after leaving the uniform. She's now the Indigenous Elder for the Australian Army and a leader of her generation. After I discharged from the Army, like I said, um, I would change jobs every two years. And then I think in 2014, I just decided I'm not working anymore. I I just can't. And I was sort of lost for a long time. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was I was just lost. I didn't have a goal, not like I had in the army. And then I went to a NADOC week and I had an older older relative who was on this board for the Queensland State Memorial. And he asked me, Oh Lorraine, would you like to be on the committee? And I said, Oh, do you think I'd be helpful? And he goes, Yes. And from there I sort of fell into doing a lot of volunteering and that's when I hit my straps, I suppose, because that's made me feel in myself and my own mental health a lot better and I have a goal now and that when I talk to people or I give presentations or speeches, I say there's three things I'm very proud of and very passionate of is being female, being Indigenous and being a veteran. And they're three things that I am, that I can connect with and that I can do my best work. And that's what I've been doing ever since the memorial. So now I'm a patron of an Indigenous youth program. I'm an ambassador, Indigenous ambassador for a private company called Corporate Protection Australia. I do a lot of um, community capability building with people like Preston Campbell's Foundation or Deadly Futures for Titans. Just recently, I went to Catherine and they did a dedication memorial for a gentleman by the name of Corporal Prentice. And he served in World War One, and he won a meritorious medal. Now, I worked with the elders up in Catherine and they were a part of the Stolen Generation Committee and they researched his history and found out where he was buried. And he was just buried in a plot of land with no headstone, no, no nothing. And just recently we did a dedication for that, that gentleman who served his country in an unmarked grave. So now he has a headstone and a plaque. Um, I sit on the board of University of Southern Queensland. That one came out of the blue, but it's... Not bad for a girl with year 10. That's right. And that's what I say to the Chancellor. 
I said, I'm the only one on this board that doesn't have a degree. And he just laughs. He thinks it's fantastic. Um, he goes, Lorraine, you've got life experience. That's what you've got. And that's what you bring to this committee. Uh, tell me, what, what is the role of, of the elder? The Indigenous elder of the Australian Army is to um, provide advice to Chief Army. I also sit on the Army Indigenous Cultural Advisory Board for Army. And what I've been doing is going around introducing myself to unit commanders and some of the soldiers and speaking to the soldiers, see how they're going, their welfare and and things like that. Because Army now has what they call a regional Indigenous Liaison Officer Network. And I work closely with them in regards to a lot of Indigenous people who serve. And what would you say to a young Indigenous girl listening to this, or boy, what would you say to them about a life in the Army? It wouldn't necessarily be in the Army. I would say that... I would sit down and I would say to them, what do you like doing? What would you like to do when you grow up? Do you think you could do that, you know? Or if you had help, would you do that? I can give you my example and my experience, but what is it you truly want for yourself? Do you want to, in 20 years, still be here and not doing anything? Or, you know, I just know my own story and my own life and I know that I made my own choices. And I'm happy with all my my own choices. And I say to my husband, and he used to get really upset at this, I don't have any regrets. And he goes, well, what about when you made the bad choices? And I said, at the time, I had a choice to make. Be it good, bad or indifferent, I decided to make that choice and I went with that choice. If it was wrong, then it was wrong, then I live with it. But I should never regret having made that decision even though it was wrong. Do you see the current Indigenous recruits need that? They're going through a process that you went through. Can you see how you can help with that? Oh, absolutely. I talk to um, some of the younger soldiers now and and they do have some difficulties at times, but um, I sit down and I have a chat to them and and I hope, you know, what I say to them connects and and they can see a different path or, or a different thought process on how to overcome some of these situations that they're dealing with. What I do now with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island Memorial in Queensland... I had this little marquette and I took it around and I took it out to the kids at Dolby and Chinchilla and showed the Indigenous kids there. And uh, the first thing they asked me was, oh, Arnie, did you join the army? I said, yes. And then they said, oh, did you earn a lot of money? So, you know, things haven't changed in 30, 40 years. Listen, thank you very much for your time and thank you for your service, both in peace and war and to the continuing cause of reconciliation, which is a massively important thing in our nation, but also in our armed forces. David Nicholson has tattoos depicting his tour of Afghanistan. They remind him of those dangerous, exhilarating times and the camaraderie he misses in ordinary life. So I got a tattoo of Flojo, um, who was a EDD, um, explosive detection dog. So I got a, a tattoo of her um, with the combat engineer doggy paw print with a poppy. 
because uh, um, she, she I got that when she passed away a couple of years after um, after we returned. So she was retired. She got to uh, retire with her handler, which is awesome, and all the boys around her that were on the trip. Um, so she had a good couple of years afterwards. Um, so I got that in remembrance of her, just because of she was a she was a massive part of um, part of the team over there. Everybody loved her. She was absolutely beautiful. Um, then I got the cab skull, a skull with a cab helmet. Um, because I was Cav, uh, and I thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> uh, then I have a Bushmaster that's sitting in front of a AMP checkpoint with a scroll saying Mirabad Valley. Then I have good old Popeye with a Holdfast and uh, the number 95 because I commissioned uh, HMAS Maryborough, number 95, I have the the turtle for crossing the line. Um, once you cross the line, back in the day, um, you used to get a turtle tattoo, as you're now a shellback, as they call. Then I got the ace of spades, the death card, um, just for exactly what it was, you know. Uh, the luck over there of uh, dodging death. I got a... Roman numeral number two for two RIR. We've got the armored combat badge uh, tattoo, and the soldiers uh, soldiers cross. So the stire dug into the boots with the uh, boys' names on it. And you've also found something else, which which has provided some camaraderie and some of that that feeling you had with the boys on deployment. What was that? Found it used to be old Rubicon. Um, so there's a couple of American guys uh, kicked it off over in the States. Uh, I think it was a Marine and a Ranger and then brought it over here. And then they rebranded as Disaster Relief Australia. So I was going to join them um, when I was going through, you know, the, my hard times and then um, I sort of lost of who they were because they were rebranding and then, um, yeah, then I found them again, found out that, that they were the old Rubicon team um, and then started joining them and they're a non-for-profit uh, disaster relief team full of veterans and, you know, emergency service personnel as well. So it was, uh, it was nice to be amongst uh, some old veterans again. Well, that's right. And I guess one thing that veterans, particularly ones who've deployed overseas, struggle with is what are my skills worth now? What do I do with these skills? How do I value them? And people struggle with that. I've got nothing. I don't fit in anywhere. So I guess this has provided you in some way, it's not the same as being in Afghanistan getting blown up, thank (laughs) goodness, Um, but it's provided you with some level of camaraderie and things. What what role has that played in in your revival? Played a big role. It's, um, you know, you you get out and you, you go for a job and, you know, they find out you're a veteran and, you know... There's a whole poor me thing. I'm a veteran. Um, it seems to be the flavour. Uh, now I'm not, you know, I'm a veteran. I'm a hard worker. I'm, you know, all everything that's good about military personnel is now seems to be out the window. Now it's the the poor me veteran. Um, so they think you're broken straight away, um, which really 
pisses a lot of people off because majority of the guys I know are, are, are killing it now. You know, they've got amazing jobs, amazing families, um, you know, doing stuff you wouldn't even think um, in their careers. And I was really struggling with it. Um, a couple of jobs I tried, they sort of went, oh, we had a ex military guys here before and it didn't work out. I'm like, well, we're not all broken. Um, so I found it very hard and then finding this uh, Disaster Relief Australia, that was that was awesome. Um, you know, there, there are quite a few people in there that are struggling. Um, they're there for the same reasons. Um, so, you know, we're not there to help, just to help uh, the community. Um, we're there to help each other as well. So, that was awesome to see that. And, you know, you make connections through there um, that can push push you for jobs and, um, you know, they really just bring you back up saying, you know, it's not the poor veteran me. These guys are hard workers. Um, I think you get to show the community that, again, yeah, it's just a stereotype that, you know, does it really annoys me to see that uh, everyone thinks, oh, you're a veteran. Oh, I, I get it all the time. Oh, you know, oh, you're in the army. Are you okay? It's like, yeah, man, I love my time over there. Absolutely. I'll be back in a heartbeat. So, you know, and majority of the guys I served with are the same. Because how old are you now? Uh, 37. 37. You're still, in most terms, a young man. Yeah. What does the rest of your life look like now, given your service, and what impact will it have on it? Uh, brain, brain wise, not too sure. Um, so I've got, uh, I can't even remember what the uh, doctor said, but I've got like white matter and stuff on my brain. Um, could have possible early onset dementia later on. Future problems, so I'm not really worried about it at the moment. But yeah, at the moment, I'm, you know, I've got a new job now. I'm, um, working for, for Parks and Conservation um, as one of the seasonal firefighters. So, you know, you've got to be reasonably fit and healthy for that. It's pretty tough work. So, you know, I'm, I'm good to go at the moment, <laughs> especially now uh, now with my fiance. <laughs> so she's uh, brought a lot out of me, which I, I didn't think I had, which is awesome. So very much in the present. What has what she brought out, David? Um, just to, you know, enjoy everything, enjoy, you know, even the, the tiniest things, just sitting down, having a, a wine, having a little debrief of the day, you know, just in the backyard with the dogs, like how important that is. Like, the, the smallest things are everything. You know, it's not all about the big stuff. Given your experience, um, there'll, be, there'll be young kids who are just like you listening to this, what would you say about the ups and the downs of a, a life in the service and uh, what, what they can expect and, and, and how they should treat the, uh, the roller coaster ride that it is? Oh, um, sadly, <laughs> sadly, they probably won't be deployed. That's the biggest guarantee you can get. Um, you know, there's definitely a reason why people just joined in the first place, but... Um, yeah, do it. It's one of the best things that I ever experienced. Um, all the crappy ads that they put put out there, uh, 
don't actually show much. It's um, you know, oh, this is my army. It's uh, it's all the behind the scenes stuff. It's it's fun. You get to do some random crap you wouldn't even think of. Um, you know, you go outfield, you you play armies. Basically, it's you know, it's a big game here in Australia. It's it's good fun. There's also you know the the bull crap that comes with it, but you get that in every single job. So don't expect not to see it in the army. So no regrets. No regrets. No, loved it. So that that period in Afghanistan was such a defining moment in your life. I guess they say that you never feel more alive than when your life's at risk. Is it a fair thing? Oh yeah, yeah, very fair thing. <laughs> Well, you survived, and thank you for your service, David Nicholson. No, it was an absolute pleasure. I'll do it again. (laughs) Kim Morgan Short's family has paid the ultimate price. She's lost two husbands, Stu Morgan to cancer in 2019 and Anthony Short to a crash in 1997. Shorty's ashes are interred at Amberley Air Base in Queensland, where he was posted. It was really difficult. Where do you put a 31-year-old? I mean, when when we were going through the funeral, they're asking if I wanted to buy a joint plot somewhere. And I'm a 34-year-old mother with three little children. I don't want to buy my burial plot. So uh, the Padre suggested that we interred his ashes at what used to be the old front gate. And I'm extremely grateful uh, that they had that option. And It's now within the Amberley Air Force Base because the old front gate is now, they moved the gate and the gate is now uh, further down. I often go out to see him and I'll see a little flower or a little memento left on there so I know that some of his friends do drop by and um, leave little things there. I'm very grateful for that and I think it's a gorgeous place for him to rest. It's... Horrific, actually, to actually be the person who's benefiting from my own experience so that when Stuart uh, died, they basically marched out the Defence Community Organisation bereavement officer and a military bereavement officer and they said, would you like us to tell you what we do? And I said, I know what you do because your job exists because of me, because the navigator's widow and I had no liaison to the military back when the boys were killed. We desperately wanted to stay in touch with the Air Force. We desperately wanted to stay in touch with their friends, the squadron. This was our whole world, don't forget. And we suddenly got shifted out of it in a, in very short order. And I'd actually been working at the Air Force base at the time as a doctor in a civilian capacity, but also as a reservist. So we pushed and pushed until the very first Defence Community Organisation military liaison officer was assigned to us and we were incredibly grateful. And then 20 years later, when my second husband was dying and died, uh, I got assigned a civilian and a military liaison officer. And, you know, the process, as painful and traumatic as it was, was extremely um, easy and they've definitely upped their act and the way that things were organised and looked after were much, much better 20 years later. So I didn't want to be the one that had to benefit from my own experience and how many people have to go through losing two husbands. But I get to say with absolute certainty that 
the organisation has done better. I do think that my story hopefully can help some people who are struggling with issues. Gosh, I mean, I have many, many days I struggle and and that's important to acknowledge that, that putting on the, the brave face is just a face. There's, there's a lot going on underneath. And yet at the end of all this, what's the right word? I guess you've reconciled your relationship with the military to the point where you are working in defence recruitment now. How does that feel to be still involved in the process, as you say, at the other end of it? I think in some ways it's delightful because on days where I meet these really little eager faces, people who've said they've wanted to do these things, you know, I want to be a tank driver since a little kid, I want to be a pilot since a little kid, I want to be cabin crew since a little kid. I love seeing that. I love seeing them coming in. Uh, I love seeing, uh, you know, young people coming in with dad's tie wrapped around their shirt, clearly never having worn a tie ever before, but recognising this is a really important day on the day that they're coming in to join the military. And part of me really loves that. This is a new angle to be looking at it, front of the pipeline. I also think I know what it takes and I know what the other end is. So I'm very conscious of making sure that I'm helping uh, along with my colleagues to, to choose the people who are most benefit are going to benefit from the service and who are going to benefit the service as well. And there are people listening to this podcast, both men and women, who are contemplating joining a service, creating a service family. Yours has been a traumatic, exciting, incredible journey. What would you say to them about what lies ahead? good or bad? I think on the whole, you know, here everybody was telling me not to marry another pilot because they were worried that he was going to die in another crash. He died of cancer. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He exercised. He was fit as a malleable. You can't control life. You can't control what happens in life. I think you've got to go for what it is that you want. And I also think that you shouldn't choose not to serve because your mum's worried about what's going to happen to you when you could get run over on your push bike riding to school. And I think it's really important because we all talk about um, the organisation and the organisation's only made up of people. And definitely 22 years ago, I felt like the organisation was against me. That's not entirely true. There has to be an acknowledgement that things change slowly. And even if people are willing to change that process in big clumsy organisations takes time. But I admire a lot of uh, the widows who pushed this over time. I admire a lot of the people who took the advice and ran with it and changed policy from the top. And uh, I think that, you know, the direction is still ways to go, but it's important that we acknowledge that it has changed. Well, thank you for your service and your sacrifices and the, and the service of your family. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, I'm extremely proud to have served and still be serving. My son's still serving and my two husbands gave their all for the service. Up Close Conversations with Modern Veterans is a listener production in association with the Australian War Memorial. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Executive producer is Todd Stevens. Audio production by Ed Gooden and Link Kelly. Listener.